What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. Andrew Steinwald is the managing partner of Sifermion, an investment firm focused on the NFT ecosystem. All opinions expressed by Andrew and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Sifermion. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Sifermion or related entities may maintain positions in the assets discussed in this podcast. My guest today is Bernadine broker Wiede. Bernadine is the founder of Vistari and Vistari Labs. Vistari is focused on helping the traditional art world showcase art globally via museums, exhibitions, and more. Vistari Labs is the Web3-focused arm that acts as the bridge between the traditional art world and the metaverse. Bernadine has deep experience in the art world and has always been looking towards how to utilize technology to improve art since day one. During our conversation, we cover Bernadine's impressive background, the current state of the global art market, how NFTs are impacting the art world, and even topics like how art is valued. For everyone that wants to learn more about the intersection of art and technology, this is the episode for you. Please enjoy my conversation with Bernadine. Bernadine, thank you so much for joining me today. Super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Andrew. It's really nice to be here today. Um, I'm totally from an art background. So I um, trained at Christie's, uh, being able to value things from paintings to silver. Um, and I helped set up an impressionist and modern gallery in London. So that means I was selling stuff like Monet, Picasso, etc. And then in 2012, 2013, I set up my own business um, working with tech in the art world. Uh, specifically, we first set up a database. This is very like 2012 uh, cloud computing, um, a database of private collections that was accessible to museums for loans. So if a museum's planning an exhibition that they could borrow one of these pieces for their next show. And um, that kept growing. And in 2016, we launched a second database of whole exhibitions. So instead of asking for one Picasso, you can actually hire a whole Picasso exhibition. And it was very uh, successful, again, because it's very difficult to figure out where you can get this content. And, uh, and yeah, we were growing and growing. In 2019, we facilitated about $2 billion worth of content going from one owner to a venue and uh and then we basically um <laughs> had 2020 right so you suddenly all uh, exhibitions are stopped museums are closed you basically people aren't booking new content because they have huge backlogs of content um if you're from this space you'd know like exhibitions are planned five years in advance or something so basically we've got a huge backlog and no desire for new physical content, but what was really exciting during the pandemic was that there was this growth of interest in digital content and digital experiences. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of that's a bit of me. That's so cool. Okay, so I want to touch upon your kind of background at Christie's because you said that you were you weren't just looking at art; you were looking at silver and all sorts of like other collectibles and goods. What is that? What is that experience like? Because I feel like valuing art. Uh, is pretty difficult in, in, in and of itself. And so when you're looking at these other kind of collectibles and art-like things, how, how does that, is there a new uh, valuation framework for each type of good or, or how, how does it work? Yeah, it's totally different for each type of good. If you look at silver, there are hallmarks that you can tell even precisely what date silver is from, depending on which geography it's from, etc. 
silversmiths tended to have good guilds and they got together and set standards, which is quite an interesting thing to think about historically. Um, but then when you look at things like furniture, you have to look at the stylistic elements to be able to figure things out. And um, you can also use materials, like whether that pigment or that style really existed during that time. So there's all kinds of tricks for every different type of media to, to, to date them. And then you look at whether it's a good example of it and whether you can actually attribute value to that example. Very cool. Okay, so, and then you said in 2012, you set up a business that would essentially, it was a, it was a database of, of all private kind of large art collections. And then what you could do is you would basically connect those collectors to museums and they would be able to display their art in these museums. What was the, like, why would I, let's just pretend I'm some big time collector, Am I getting money for for doing that? Or is it just like prestige? Or why, why would I show my art collection at, at a museum? Yeah, this is the thing. So I, I, I actually, when I told you my background, I gave you like my professional background. But I'll tell you a little bit about me personally. I grew up in the Dominican Republic, in the Caribbean. So not close to this art world at all. And so basically, um, when I came to the art world in Europe and New York, I kind of noticed how there were all these unsaid rules about how things worked. And when you actually dug deeper, you found out the kind of what was the value exchange that was happening there. So um, the uh, in this specific example of private collectors lending to museums, there isn't a, a money changing hands, but there's value changing hands. So basically, when your art is shown within museums, it adds to the exhibition history of the piece and it increases the value of the piece. So it's quite an important thing to happen. Um, and museums say that they curate it all completely um, neutrally, so choosing the most relevant objects. But in practice, it's so difficult to get in touch with all the private collectors that often they focus only on works that are in other museums or works that are in well-known collections. And so I kind of thought that it's important to bring in uh, pieces from people that might not know uh, museum curators <laughs> like like me in the Dominican Republic um, and so basically it was about democratizing that curation to some extent and it definitely ruffled some feathers uh, I had people telling me that they would fire people if they used our tool because <laughs> they were hired for their address book so if they needed a website to find a collector then they weren't a good curator that kind of stuff oh that's that's super crazy and that's definitely something I want to touch into later on because I feel like the art world, I mean, yeah, you would know this way more than me, but like the art world is super, you know, they, they're set in their ways. They don't like innovation necessarily. And whenever there's a, kind of a, a, a threat to them, they, they react pretty intensely. And so. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. We can talk about that later. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. We'll, we'll, we'll touch upon that more, but all right. So you said in, in 2019, you had, you had, $2 billion worth of content flowing from owners of arts to venues. So people just kind of shipping their stuff to a museum and showing that and they, they're incentivized because it increases the value of their works and then the museum wants it because it's just like more exciting content. Is, is that essentially the, the, the process? Well, by that point, we were also working on whole exhibitions, right? So like one of our most popular shows in 2019 was an exhibition of DC Comics where you had like costumes of with super, superman and batman costumes right on display so it's not just art at this point we we, we kept growing 
We had exhibitions. Well, we still do. We have exhibitions of dinosaurs, of Lego, of virtual reality experiences, as well as the kind of typical art world stuff. Um, and it's slightly different when you have a whole exhibition because in that situation, it's kind of seen as intellectual property. So the if you if you if you make an exhibition and then it gets uh, booked for a new venue, the new venue will pay you a hiring fee to take that exhibition. Okay, very cool, very cool. All right, so okay, so so everything was basically going very well, and then 2020 happened, COVID, boom, all events are basically stopped completely. And so so what was your thought process at the time? You're like, oh my gosh, like this is this is terrible. Like, what am I going to do? Or were you already kind of interested in this world of NFTs and 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 yeah, just, just, just take me through your process of of what what you did during 2020. So. Um... I guess I've always been interested in distributed ledger technology since about 2015. Um, I uh, had a lot of conversations, for example, and we even did some prototypes with Leanne from Everledger about how blockchain could be relevant to the art world. And um, yeah, we have a lot of really interesting projects, but we actually did some of our prototypes off chain because I always believed that the blockchain was so powerful, but only if you brought all of the parties to the table to make it powerful, right? If, if you just do it as a, as a business on your own, it doesn't work. So the hard part of getting distributed ledger technology and all of this type of these digital tools into our sector is that most of the people are scared of tech. Most of the people are kind of not really interested in their digital presence, don't attribute much value to that. So um, back in 2015, 2016, there's definitely few people who were up for talking about blockchain in the art world, right? Um, and then in uh, 2018, I helped organize a conference after um, the ICO boom and all of that, uh, all of that kind of misinformation that was going out there with all the what you would now call rug pulls that happened in 2018 uh we organized well late 2017 mainly um we organized a conference in july 2018 at christie's that was called the art and tech summit exploring blockchain that um brought together all of the main thought leaders on art and blockchain in the space in london at christie's and um and yeah that's become kind of a bit of a seminal moment in this space of, of the art world looking at blockchain seriously. That's amazing. Okay, so so what was it, were you initially interested in crypto or was it mostly like crypto as in like Bitcoin or was it mostly blockchain as in, okay, wait, this is a really useful technology. I see how this can be applied to the art world. And also you were already... I was not, I was not a Bitcoin uh, maxi at all. And I really liked Bitcoin as a concept, but I was more into the potential for using this kind of distributed ledger tech in other applications. So specifically for me, um, when you're working with exhibitions, there are so many people who don't trust each other. I mean, even Sotheby's and Christie's don't share information with each other, right? So if there was a way for data integrity and stuff to be held... That would be great. Very cool. And, and you were kind of already primed to dive into blockchain because you were already kind of in this, you know, tech art world space, which I feel like from, from, from our conversation, it, it was it, it was a 
small number of people that were very forward thinking. Now that your question was about like what happened in 2020, right? <laughs> so we were already in this space, right? We were already looking at distributed ledger tech. We were looking at crypto and kind of how this was relevant. Um, and so when during 2020, it was like, oh my gosh, these museums need help, right? They're all closed. They're all struggling. They need help. How can we help them? And um, we, we were looking at digital exhibitions, at how to like showcase their expertise in digital forms, etc. And simultaneous to that, of course, this huge growth in Web3 and NFTs and everything started. And museums were coming to us saying, I've got this proposition on my desk. Is this something that I should be doing? Should I be minting all of the JPEGs in my collection as an NFT type of thing? That's awesome. Okay, so so I learned about crypto, which is like Bitcoin, before I really understood NFTs. For you, was it kind of you were aware of of the technology, and at what point were you like, oh my gosh, like NFTs? Like because originally you're you come at this from like a tech and database standpoint, where where like was, um, I was always convinced. It's it's really interesting because if you asked me back in 2017 how I thought this would get adopted. I would not have told you that it was going to be the standard on Ethereum set up by CryptoKitties that would be used by the entire art world. I mean, that is just insane. <laughs> but it's it's just, it was easy to use. It's something that people can really use. And also, I think that a lot of the players that were in the space trying to protect themselves were reluctant to use public ledger technology like Ethereum and yeah, making things so open. And actually, that's the really exciting thing to me with what's happened recently is that people now understand the power of radical transparency, of using these public ledgers and being able to store data in this way. And for me, I mean, the term NFT even like didn't exist when we did our conference in, in at Christie's, right? It was all about... Um, art on the blockchain and how we could use it to store information and that type of thing. It's, it's, uh, it's very different. Um, but I always knew that I, there, what I liked about crypto is kind of this concept of a transnational entity that is trustless, that helps with this, I guess, as someone who has many nationalities and doesn't even live somewhere where her passport's from and stuff like that, I kind of understand the concept of having things that are beyond our borders to a certain extent. It's very cool. It's like, it's, yeah, I mean, you're, you're learning about your background and, and kind of seeing what you've been doing within the art world. It seems like you were you were just perfectly kind of positioned to enter the, the NFT ecosystem. So, so, okay, 2018, you're already kind of getting involved here, or actually very deeply involved, I'd say. And then 2020, COVID, COVID happened. So, um, like, what, what was the what was like the jumping off point for you, where you're like, okay, well, um, everything is is you know no longer in person. Everything's kind of digital and virtual. I'm gonna go kind of full steam ahead into this world of, of NFTs and, and kind of blockchain. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, I, I I think that we always, well, I know exactly the moment that I was like, huh, something is really happening here, and that was December 2020 actually, when the NFT uh, like like transactions nearly tripled or actually more than tripled in one month. And you kind of thought, whoa, something is happening here. This is like bigger than anything we could have uh, understood. Um, 
like before that point, it was always lots of goodwill and lots of people working really hard and lots of potential. But that was the moment that it was like, crap, this is this is real. This is really happening. That's awesome. Okay, so so you know, I, I you are the you are the CEO and founder of, of Vistari. Could you explain to everyone what is Vistari and why is it exciting? Yeah, so what's exciting is um, Bastari has a root in the traditional art world uh, and has a, 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 another foot in this kind of Web3 space. And we're like a no bullshit, real world kind of um, partner for projects in Web3. Uh, people trust us if we say that something's legit and people trust us if we say something's not really legit. So we've turned into a little bit of that type of voice. Um, but we're all about democratization and making the art world more accessible. Since, as you can tell, since 2012, I was all about democratization. And we're actually named after Giorgio Vasari, who was the first art historian. Um, he's from the 16th century. Well, some people call him the first art historian. He wrote a book. Um, at the time, everyone wrote in Latin, but he decided to write in Italian about all the artists at his time. And because he wrote it in such a compelling way, and I mean compelling, not like intellectually compelling, I mean like gossip. Like he told people that Raphael was, um, well, that Michelangelo was a diva and that he would like argue with the Pope and that, um, yeah, just that one of the artists uh, passed away because uh, he was making love with the baker's daughter, like those types of stories that people remember and then they kind of want to remember these these artists. So in my opinion, exhibitions and the context that you need around art is necessary for the general public and everyone to love it. And so that's what our whole company was about. And now, Vastari Labs, which we've set up in 2021, is about how do we create that context for this huge NFT boom? Like, what are what are the things that need to happen around NFTs and around um, these projects to give them context and to give them that type of importance that uh, back in the 16th century, Vasari helped people like Leonardo, Michelangelo, all the uh, Ninja Turtles are named after them 500 years later, right? So it's, it's, it's creating that permanence to a certain extent. First of all, that, that, I love that story about that, that uh, art historian that was kind of writing the, 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 the gossip type articles about these artists. It, 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 it's, it's actually so much more interesting. I mean, I mean, of course, like it's interesting to hear like the official story, but also like hearing the, the background and kind of the gossip, that, that's really, really exciting, especially you know, all the way back then. So that, that's very, very cool. Exactly, it's just fun. And, and, and that's the thing, this needs to be fun, like serious, but fun. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're Vasari with a T for technology. I love it. Okay, so, okay, so, so if you had to kind of give it a one-liner uh, for, for anyone who is wanting to um, kind of l learn more about you guys or, or kind of partner with you guys or whatnot, what is the one-liner for Vasari? For Vastari, we are the matchmaker between content owners, venues, exhibition producers, and technologists to create exciting projects. Okay, awesome. So, so I'm an artist, and I'm in the traditional world, and I'm like, okay, well, I really want to kind of enter this this world of Web three, this world of NFTs. I don't really know like anything really. It's a brand new world for me. So, I would go to you guys and say, hey. Uh, Bernadine, I'm looking to, you know, launch some NFTs. Like, what do I do? Is that is that is that like a high level? 
Yeah, I think definitely. But the type of people we're working with maybe are less the traditional artists and more like traditional institutions, like museums, um, galleries, those types of organizations that are in our network, as well as collectors and um, yeah, VR producers and that type of thing. And yeah, we match them with who in Web three is the best for them to work with for the type of project that they're trying to do. Very cool. Okay. Okay. I I see now. Okay. So, so what, like why does a museum, so a museum is like, I want a presence in this world. I need to talk to Bernadine. Is, is that kind of like the, the idea? Yeah. So, so, so a lot of museums want to get involved with NFTs, right? Um, but they're very skeptical. They're very reluctant to be involved with the, the speculative aspects of DeFi. And they're really worried about those types of things. And I also think that they're getting some bad advice in some places. Um, so it's really important that they step into this world, understanding how to hold on to all of the kind of ethics that they have in the real world. Um, most museums abide by a code of ethics. And that has a lot of a lot to do with um, have, uh, preserving the objects, educating people about them, making sure that they stay for the long term. And I think that many of the initiatives that might be in this space are not necessarily aligned with that. So okay, so and Vistori Labs is is only focused on kind of the NFT Web three ecosystem. And so what, what type of work have you guys done today that you, you can kind of, you can touch upon? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff coming in 2022 that I can't talk about yet, but the project that we did launch in 2021 was um, the Ancient of Days NFT, which we did with the Whitworth in uh, Manchester. It's an NFT project uh, that is actually part of an exhibition that will be shown in 2023. So kind of like it's two years in the making. And they minted uh, 50 NFTs on Tezos. Um, we can talk later about the, why they decided to do it there. But they've minted William Blake's Ancient of Days, which is quite a famous image, as NFTs. And they are going to be tracking all of the owners of those NFTs over the next two years. And whatever happens to them is going to be shown within the museum. Um, so that's kind of the the core proposition. Uh, the exhibition in 2023 is called Economics, the Blockbuster, and it's all about the relationship between art and finance throughout the ages. So it's kind of perfect to have an NFT project in there. But what, what was really interesting is, so The Ancient of Days by William Blake is one of the most important pieces in the museum's collection. It's worth lots of money. And what they're doing with the proceeds of the NFT is they're investing it into the community around the museum. So it's kind of this like revolutionary idea about the, the wealth of the collections going to the people of Manchester, where um, the museum is kind of in a neighborhood where there are, it's, it's called Moss Side, and it's kind of like a, a bit urban. And what do I mean by that? Like they're, they're there's a lot of people that could use money <laughs> and in this in the middle of a place where there might be a lot of people who are kind of skint you've got these really expensive artworks so it's kind of about connecting those and um the other interesting thing about this project is they didn't just mint the jpeg of the image because that's in the open domain everyone can see that online they actually minted 
a multi-spectral image of the work that's really high resolution. So basically they were using this really high-res um, equipment to analyze the pigment of the work. It's like an image that you could only see if you were at the museum using this equipment. So it's kind of something from behind the scenes that no one would usually see. That's so cool. Okay, so so not to sound like a just like a filthy capitalist, but so why why does the museum wanna use the proceeds from this to to like put back in the community? Like, wouldn't it make sense for them to I don't know keep continue to build out their museum and kind of you know f- focus on that? Yeah, I think. Um... Definitely, there will be places where NFTs are used to just fund the museum. But remember, these are risk-averse institutions. Like, it makes sense to start from something that's a little bit more charitable and kind of makes sense in that way. But also, I think that um, when you when you look at kind of the questions that are being asked with NFTs and kind of that whole transparency. For for example, they wanted to do everything on chain. They do not want to do any they didn't want to partner with any platform where there would be like the option to pay with um with pounds because they want it all to be on chain for example so it's 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 trying to make things more transparent and see how that supply chain could be disrupted i think that's why they did that that's really cool okay so so are you helping these entities with like everything from Kind of the messaging to the actual event itself to kind of the the, the just like the, the know-how within the space like is it just is it like a to z yeah I, I would say so we find the right partners for a to z and um we help them with uh with conceptualizing it actually um jason bailey from art gnome was one of our advisors on how to conceptualize it and think about what would be meaningful we then um marketed it and helped it launch this was never going to be a blockbuster launch that you just like sell out and have like a huge auction. It was about kind of being under the radar. And I was saying earlier about why did we choose Tezos? It was kind of interesting. Firstly, museums are really worried about the environmental footprint of their activities. And there are a lot of headlines around that. So they wanted to use a proof of stake chain. But also what's really interesting is the ecosystem in Tezos is very early, so it will probably progress quite a lot in the two years from now until when the exhibition opens. So it'll be really interesting for the museum to be alongside all of the artists as that develops and grows and evolves. Like many people, we say like the Tezos art marketplaces, at least, feel a lot like the ETH art marketplaces two, three years ago. Awesome. Okay, so... And then also, you had this really cool story that you you told me told uh, to me before, and this is the, not on the pod, but uh, you you mentioned that there was a really uh, really early on you released some tokens. I think they were like related to super rare, but there were these tokens given away for free. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Speaking awesome. of like, I guess NFTs in two thousand and eighteen, and how how things are uh, how things are, are are working. Like, we did a similar soft launch of stuff <laughs> back then. Um, we At the conference that I mentioned at Christie's, we gave away uh, 300 NFTs. They weren't even called NFTs at the time. Super rare together with Jason and this artist called Robbie Barrett created 300 NFTs that were given away at the Christie's event. Um, and they were some of the first NFTs on super rare. And um, they weren't even called NFTs back then, as I mentioned. So now those have become quite 
well known because most of the 300 have been lost. Most people took those paper wallets from their gift card, uh, from their like gift bag and didn't realize it was valuable. I think only like 30 or so have been recovered. And um, yeah, th th there's a lot of writing about it online, like the lost Robbies. That's so cool. And then also, I think that you told me that they were selling for like millions of dollars oh, or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah, is well, that... it, it, it already seemed incredible when they started selling for $15,000 last year. And then earlier this year, they started selling for $250,000. And now they're selling for like over a million. So um, yeah, they've really grown. Well, 300 ETH and more. So yeah, they've definitely grown in, uh, in interest. Wow. Okay. All right. So, so speaking of that, like, I, I wanted to ask, like, what what are the driving forces behind the art value? Like, like, because I feel like it's so hard, especially for me, to determine. Okay, this art, this piece of art is worth hundred bucks. This piece of art is worth a million. How how do you go about kind of kind of deciphering that? I, I like that you asked that because people often look at the lost Robbies and go like, "Wow, that's so valuable. What is it?" But I think that it's so important to look at the art itself. So Robbie is an amazing artist. He trains, um, he was an early GAN artist and he trained a, 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 yeah, an AI to create nudes based on nudes that were in paintings. And um, the AI doesn't understand flesh. It doesn't understand humans, right? So he, as it started learning, it started evolving and morphing and creating these weird shapes that don't even look like flesh anymore, but sort of look like flesh. And it's kind of representative of how machines are going to try and replicate us and understand humans and understand everything we do, but they never will quite get there. And so I guess what I, that long story meant to say is just like, it's about the art first and the concept and the fact that it can move you when you find out more about it, that it really is the first thing. And then the second thing is that there's a community around it that really care about it. Um, and that community will write about it like Giorgio Vasari did back in the 16th century. There are people that will uh, tell the stories that are funny and interesting and keep them alive. And then you need to have patronage. So people who pay for the art to keep growing in value, right? So those are kind of the, the ingredients to make something great. That's really cool. Like I, I, I have a, like a super simplistic way of, of kind of looking at the value of NFT art at least because I, I know nothing about physical art. But for NFT art, I really look at kind of the – it essentially boils down to – and this is very simplistic, but the artist's reputation or brand. I, I think that that's really uh, what it comes down to because, you know, if, if Hackatow makes a piece of art, then that could sell for a million bucks. If I somehow made the exact same piece of art, it would sell for like $100, right? And even though it's exactly the same piece of art, is, is that something that – you think is kind of just, I mean, it's very simplistic, is that okay? Yes and no, because I think there are loads of big brand artists that create crap and it doesn't sell for as much. And there are also one hit wonders in art, right? Like the, the artists who've created one piece that just is really famous and is really loved. And I think it's the same with NFT art. I think that what happens with these brands of people is yes, they have a consistency of style that people recognize, but also they have great people around them who tell the stories. Hakatel was part of that early, like da-da-da-art, creeps and weirdos, like community of people. And people who understood their style, understood what they were doing so others could explain it. 
that now it seems like almost like, oh my gosh, how did they get there? But it's been years in the making and there are lots of people who believe in it that have been involved. Okay, so so how important is is like the narrative or story behind the artwork itself? And, and narrative meaning like, you know, you're telling me about uh, Robbie Barrett and you're like, he's one of the first kind of earliest kind of AI uh, people, you know, artists kind of creating these cool works and, and, you know, one of the first tokens on Super Rare. And, you know, so without even seeing the art, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so cool, right? And, and I'm just hearing the, the story. And Yeah, but, so. but still it needs to stop you in your tracks. So I actually took some uh, work by Robbie to Greece, to a conference that had nothing to do with art specifically. I was in charge of showing the art there. And we took one of Robbie's pieces that is this, um, it's called um, Peeping Skull. And it's like a box with a hole in it. And you look in and you see a skull created by AI. And you're the only person who will ever see that skull in ever, right? Because the computer uh, destroys it after 20 seconds. And so you have this responsibility to remember that skull because otherwise no one will ever see that image. And people were looking inside that box and feeling so like conflicted about the fact that like they're looking at something beautiful, something really moving, but also they can't hold on to it. It's like fleeting and it's gonna disappear. And actually skulls, if you look throughout history, skulls have been the memento mori. They're the things that kind of remind you that we all die and that everything is fleeting and that everything is gone. So I don't need to tell you about Robbie and his tokens and his AI and whatever. If you just look at that work, you feel something because it's quite impactful to know that but you need to be able to contextualize it. Like if you just look in a white box and you see a skull, you kind of think like, okay, that's cool, but what is this? So you kind of need that storytelling, you see? You need someone to explain to you why this is interesting. And then, um, well, there were people who even cried at that artwork at the event. So yeah, it can really move people. Amazing. All right, so so in your opinion, what, what are the biggest differences between the traditional art world, like we'll call it like, I don't know, physical art world, and then the NFT art world? Um, it's funny because it started off completely different and now it's starting to look more and more similar because the traditional art world has a few people that buy a lot of the art, the top 200 collectors from art news and people kind of chase after them and try and sell their work to them. And, uh, and the whole concept of Web3 and NFTs was that anyone can own art, anyone can support artists, anyone can get involved. And there's a whole part of the art world uh, in terms of the NFTs that is turning into the art world like in the traditional way. Like they're chasing whales, they're um, trying to get, sell their NFTs for a lot of money to the highest bidder. But there's a whole movement that's kind of not in the headlines of the news and not in the headlines of everything that's actually supporting artists who want to make a living. And they create maybe, uh, rather than ERC721 tokens, they create ERC1155 so they can like create editions that many people can own and like fractionalize the ownership of artworks or create interactivity that was never possible before. So um, yeah, I guess... Long story short, I think that just like in anything else, there are many ways to look at it. I think that there is a part of the NFT art world that is exactly like the traditional art world, and that's probably the ones that are interacting with Christie's and Sotheby's and making the headlines. 
But there is this other grassroots, really cool NFT world that really is disrupting the way that digital artists can make a living. So one of my observations, and again, like I'm not super deep into the to, into the NFT art world, but one of my observations is that like artists in the NFT space, they really have to essentially be their own marketers in some sense, where they're um, they need to go out on Twitter and on Discord and like really tell people about their work and, and and be their own kind of entity. Where I feel like in the normal art uh, art market, that doesn't really like you have you could basically can like work with a gallery or someone else to do that for you. So I feel like it's 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 definitely rewarding that the NFT art market is rewarding the artists that are also like good at marketing. Is is that something that you've seen as well, or is that not accurate? Yeah, well, Damien Hirst is the best marketer, right? Like he is known for being able to be the best marketer in the world, and he'll switch galleries all the time. But he's the guy who kind of does it all. I think that's always been the case. There are some artists that do amazing because they're just good marketers. What I think is right in your comment is that it's amazing that artists can now have a direct contact with their collectors and like airdrop them stuff and create stuff directly for collectors, speak to them on Twitter, all that kind of stuff. But I think that actually there's a new breed of gallery that's developing that are those middle step for artists who want to market their work. And that's just a whole new economy that's developing. and what's cool is they're developing in a new business model where they're not taking 50% from the artist. They might be taking a smaller percentage and helping the artist with their work. And it can be kind of distributed through smart contracts, etc. That's really cool. Yeah. And, and then touching upon like the accessibility of the artists, I think that that's, you're right, that's a huge differentiating factor where I feel like I couldn't go to some big time artist and like tweet at them or DM them or like Discord them and they would respond they're, they're like so busy and doing other stuff. But, but I feel like in the NFT world, it's normal to interact with these people that, that you're, with these artists that you're collecting their works of. And that, it develops a, a you know, like a video game streamers, like people feel very closely to video game streamers because, they, you know, they, they log in on Twitch and they can like watch them and they, they can see their personality and they can comment on their, on their uh, little chat room and whatnot and kind of interact with the streamer there. And they develop like these real uh, kind of bonds o- over that, which is kind of, Kind of weird to think about, but but it's very cool at the same time. So I think that's another. So is that what we're seeing here in like the in the NFT art world, where, where like artists are becoming like these quasi? I mean, influencers is kind of a gross term, but like like quasi influencers. I think I think so a little bit, but it's 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 just interesting because a lot of these artists worked in other spaces because they could never have made money from their digital creations. So maybe they were doing commissions for music artists or producing music videos or doing uh, image mapping for events, that kind of stuff. And suddenly they can do stuff that they can make money out of, which is quite cool. Um, And I, I think that what I'm really excited about is that this is funding artists to be able to create art for art's sake. You're not creating art to be a backdrop for Ariana Grande. You're creating art because you want to move people. And when people are funded to create art that moves people, you actually get some really amazing production of art. So I think that like the best digital art has not been created yet today. It will be created thanks to the unlocking of patronage that has happened as a result of this NFT phenomenon. That's super cool. Okay, so speaking of like kind of the historical significance, so are we in a period right now that is like the NFT art period where like, I don't know, you know, you have like post-war contemporary, you have like the pop art period or like the whatever. 
And so are, are, are people going to look back at this time and like, you know, 20 years from now and be like, oh my gosh, like that was the time where like, you know, the NFT art market was like, or like the NFT art movement was like just blossoming. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I I think of it as a crypto art movement rather than an NFT art movement. I don't know if that's like a weird nitpicking of terms, but like kind of crypto art is art that is inspired by what is happening here and is, is, is interacting with this concept. But all of the art that's being created is digital art. It's part of a story that's been developing since the 60s. Like there are amazing artists who were creating digital art even before computers had screens. But people couldn't buy it. Um, sometimes you could buy a print out off of a computer, but you couldn't see all those amazing different algorithms and variations that have happened, which you can see now. So I think that it's just... Sorry, going back to your question, yes, I think that this is a time that is going to be remembered by everyone in terms of the revolt that has happened, but I think that it will be written in retrospect and we will have a lot that will happen that will impact the way that people look at this time period. Um, and I think that the art world has been changed forever, just as much as when uh, photography was invented. Uh, it's, it's just a new technology that's going to completely revolutionize everything that's produced in terms of art from now on. Okay, so going off that, do you think that the physical art market, is it going to like decrease in size because of NFTs? And will NFTs like basically eat that market share? Or do you think that they're going to both now expand or like like or do you think physical art will be stagnant nft art will increase dramatically like what what are you thinking in terms of the the growth here um there isn't much overlap yet in terms of the people who buy the art the the, the traditional art at the auction houses and the people that are buying the crypto art um so i wouldn't say that they're cannibalizing each other very much i think the growth of the sale of nfts is actually in like larger demographics, bigger masses, people who haven't collected art before, but that see a meaning to owning it now because they don't really want to um, own a, a painting, but they would be really excited about owning an NFT. I think that's the growth. Um, there's a lot of people chasing that kind of traditional art collector to start buying NFTs, but I just don't think that's what it's about. That's not what Web3 is about. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for the opposite to happen, really. Very cool. Okay, so how do you see the, the NFT art market evolving going forward? Is it gonna, I don't know, is, is it gonna stay like this niche? Is it gonna become mainstream? Or also like, what will, yeah, Will it mirror the traditional art world? Like, I'd love to hear just kind of general thoughts on how this market will evolve. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen. I think that there is, um, <laughs> there are some NFTs that definitely act like securities. So I think that regulation will be coming about and that there will be a bit of a, like, a lot of difficulty in explaining which NFTs are more acting like securities and which ones are acting more like collectibles and like things that people hold on to. Um, I think that's going to be a really interesting debate to watch. I also think that right now, um, the kind of way that NFTs interact with copyright is still very unclear because we are, have very little clarity about how these digital objects are used in digital environments. But I think that that is going to change. And I think that there will be new business models developing around NFTs and copyright. Um, and then I also think that 
with the growth of layer twos and kind of being able to have scalable solutions for art, I think that there will be really interesting questions about what is the meaning of owning a token that is a part of a larger artwork. I think that's a really interesting question that people haven't really unpacked completely. So yeah, I think there's a lot of there are a lot of places that things are going to develop. Specifically, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of excited about how this can create direct links, what you were describing about the direct links between artists and the people that collect their art. I'd love to see that happen more for institutions that seem really aloof. I guess that's what my job is, right? So I would love to see you buying an NFT from a museum because you were happy um, visiting there and that the NFT then keeps in touch with, uh, sorry, that the museum then keeps in touch with you through that NFT and that they can like airdrop you stuff and teach you interesting facts about history as a result of having visited the institution in a way that isn't spammy, that is like meaningful and creating things that people will want to preserve for 500 years, right? It's really cool. It's, it's like introducing membership to the assets that you're actually purchasing and so, so, so building off that, like, what, what other, like, what new business models for, for, for like, lack of a better term there, but what new business models do you find very exciting that you think the art world uh, can, or the, the NFT art world can kind of adopt and utilize? Yeah, these these tokens are all kind of ingredients that can be part of a, like, can add up to something bigger. That's what I'm kind of excited about. So I don't know. Like the different business models, I'm thinking remixes when you have multiple NFTs in your wallet and that you can create a new thing based on those different things that are there. That basically, if you take crypto kitties and apply it to like art, that you can somehow create new stuff. I think that also um, I'm involved with a, an organization in the art world called the Art Identification Standard, where we're trying to use distributed ledger tech in this public like DIDs and verifiable credentials like the Web3 Consortium stuff to create like new business models for people who are verifying that this artwork is real, people who can write something about that artwork and then as a result increase its value. All of that type of stuff needs to be interlinked and then there are new business models that can develop from that. And I think more specifically in the short term, I think collaboration contracts are really exciting where you can actually attribute all the people who contribute to something and that they can be remunerated for it. I think that's really cool. Yeah, the, the, uh, yeah I think that, that's a super, super interesting model. It's like it's almost like remixing of songs in some sense, but, but, but with this, it's art and it's actually on chain. So it's like, yeah, that, that's, that's really, really exciting. Wow. All right, so so where where do you want to be? Let's say five to ten years from now, what is like the grand vision for everything that you're working on? Well, I'd love there to be more meaningful uh, museum NFT projects that come about. So there have been a few that came about recently that are just so depressing. Um, sorry, I don't mean to like diss other projects, and I think it's great when any museum takes a risk. But I just think that if you're minting just a JPEG of an artwork that exists in real life with no added metadata, no interesting story, no utility and nothing, it's just a digital postcard. And so selling that for the equivalent of $400 just doesn't make sense. What I love the idea of is creating things that are like POAPs or things that are going to somehow interact with the with the buyer of that NFT or the, the, the acquirer of that NFT and kind of create a meaning. 
Um, I guess I just really love stories. <laughs> I love making things come alive with stories and I can't wait to see that happening. And our role in that is that we're going to make a lot of stories come to life over the next year. A lot of new projects that are not just a PFP project or just a, an NFT project, but actually have this kind of storytelling woven into it. That's amazing. Awesome. All right, Bernadine, are you ready for the closing questions? <laughs> Go for it. All right. What is your single favorite NFT that you own? Oh, um, I guess my Lost Robbie. Okay. So, so explain, is that, is it Lost Robbie? Is that the original super tokens that you mentioned before? Yeah. Yeah. I think just because of the meaning of it, because of how special it was. Sorry. I thought this was like quick fire and I should just give you a one line answer. No, no. no so the, my, the, I think that's my favorite NFT because it just, um, it was before the hype, before you knew what NFTs mean. And I really like Robbie's work. So it, it really means a lot to me. Definitely. That's awesome. And and so you got that in 2018 like from a paper wallet? Yeah. Yeah. That's it's really cool. All right. What is your most controversial thought relating to crypto or NFTs? That um, cultural institutions aren't sitting on a gold mine of JPEGs. Yeah, so so I talked to a lot of kind of companies and 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 I don't really talk to museums, but I talked to a lot of companies and they're like, "Hey, listen, we have like $3 billion worth of IP. Therefore, we have $3 billion worth of NFTs. And I have to explain that, like, that's like not how it works. But no, no, exactly. That's the bit that I kind of, I just, I get sick of. And when I see projects that have to do with that, that it's so clearly someone with IP trying to make some money and grab some cash, it just, I, I dislike it a lot. I think that it's a lot deeper than that. And you have to understand what the movement is behind this. Yeah. So, okay. So, so you like, when people come to you and say, hey, like we, we have all this IP, we want to make a killing in the in the NFT world, H how do you direct them? Are you like, listen, like you have to, you can have, you can in, be inspired by that IP, but you can't just like copy paste. Is that kind of your... your I think um, many of the people that we talk about, the, the IP they have already has a manifestation somewhere. So whether that is hanging on a wall in a museum or as part of a virtual reality experience or as part of a, a presentation, whatever it might be. And you kind of have to define what is the relationship between the original asset and these NFTs. Are these NFTs a share of that? Are they a copy of it? Are they a uh, like a, a link to it? Are they a ticket to it? Are they, what is the relationship? And kind of creating analogies for people to understand what they're trying to do with the NFT. Because it's not just, um, yeah, I think that there's not one answer. Different organizations, different things will make sense. If it's, if it's, um, a share in the work. What does that mean? What are you funding by investing in that work? If it's a, a, a postcard, why do you want to buy that postcard? What do you want to remember? And is there a way you can personalize it? If it's a ticket, what kind of things do you get access to? What utility is there for having that NFT? And then if it's just for the love of the art that you want to own it and remember it and have it with you, yeah, I think that is a really valuable way of using it. But then how is it going to be showcased? Like, does it is it just going to live in the wallet and that's it? Like, can we have other ways of, of, of creating that interaction? So, yeah, that type of process is important to go through if you want to understand how NFTs relate to your existing IP. Awesome. 
All right, if you could snap your fingers and instantly change or improve one thing in the crypto or, or NFT ecosystem, what would it be? The carbon footprint while still keeping it super democratic because there are some issues with proof of stake that people can buy in and take over certain networks, etc. So I just wish that there was a way to have proof of work in an energy efficient way. All right, so so I agree with you that proof of work is definitely, you know, energy intensive, but isn't there an argument to be made that like if if I'm an artist and, and I'm making paintings, that is much more uh, environmentally unfriendly compared to if I'm making NFTs because it's not like, you know, I'm cutting down a tree to make the canvas and then like, you know, getting the oil for the oil paint. Like for an NFT, like sure, they're using energy. But if you look at the aggregate energy, and, and that's very easy, easy to measure, like proof of work energy usage. But it's very hard to measure like, okay, growing that tree, like how much energy did that need? Okay, cutting down the tree, you know, transporting that. And then like, you know, the, the oil, like getting that from the ground, like turning into paint, like, I think that if we were able to accurately measure the amount of energy it takes to go into actual artwork, I think we would find, oh my gosh, wow, digital art is way more environmentally friendly. Is that, do you, do you agree with that at all? Or is that totally, you know, not that? Um, so I kind of agree and kind of don't. So if you buy a painting from the 16th century, that's pretty green because it's something that was built, uh, created ages ago and um, it's being reused, just like using antique furniture and stuff like that. There's you're actually not contributing to additional consumption, right? Um, but in terms of creating new art, yes, there are a lot of really inefficient practices and also even the industry I come from doing exhibitions, that's super inefficient. I think the big problem with proof of work is just that it's like going against like if we're trying to decrease our consumption all the time, I mean, the Bitcoin white paper, the first thing it talks about is like CPU power, right? Like it's it's about competing on that level. Um, so I think um, it's it, as it grows, the carbon footprint is just going to increase. And that's kind of the thing that's really painful. Like if if you become a really successful artist and your art sells for loads, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a bigger carbon footprint in ETH, if you're going to be selling something for 300 ETH rather than 0.3 ETH, as far as I know, and yeah, that's it, we can debate that, it's got an even bigger carbon footprint. So success actually has a bad side to it. So I think that's just the hard part of it. That uh, Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the solution would be for it all to be solar powered. <laughs> Get all the miners to use solar energy to create the, the nodes, but I just don't see that happening. Okay, miners on SpaceX rockets in space using solar power, done, done. Then we're perfect. Okay, gas. But yeah, no, I think it, it just needs to somehow be solved because it just sucks if success equals like killing the planet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so, so who is someone that you look up to and why? Um, interesting. Uh, I actually think I'll say the author Harari, who wrote Sapiens. Um, I think that uh, he, uh, Juval Noah Harari, by the way, I think that that book was so important to a whole generation of thinking and philosophy that I just it's extraordinary um, how it changes the way we think about what truths we maintain being self-evident and how they are not necessarily self-evident. 
love that. Love that. Yeah. When I read that book, I was pretty blown away. So I think, yeah, I think uh, the, great, great choice. Everything is manufactured. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. Awesome. All right. Last question. Where do you see the NFT ecosystem in three years? I see it disappearing, but not in the way that people are saying. I think it's going to move into our existences in a way that you don't even use the term NFT anymore. It's just going to be a part of systems that we use in our day-to-day lives. And it'll be a bit like having a website or having other things. It's just expected. I don't know if three years is too short of a time period for that to happen, but I do think that's the future of NFTs. Amazing. Awesome. All right, Bernadine, this has been an incredible conversation. I, I love learning about your background. I, I, I didn't know it, you were kind of deeply steeped in the art world for such a long time, plus, plus also, also the tech world. So seeing you evolve in, into kind of this, grow into this NFT space is super natural and, and, and incredible. And what you're doing in building with Vistari and Vistari Labs is also super exciting. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for this space. There's going to be some really cool stuff happening next year. And thanks for giving me a chance to talk about a little bit of, I don't know, context and meaning behind all this art stuff. Oh, uh, yeah, 100%. If, if people wanted to find out more about yourself, find out more about Vistari, Vistari Labs, where should they go? What should they do? Um, so Twitter, LinkedIn, and our online portal. We actually record bi-weekly webinars about this space. So if you log in, you'll be able to see all of them. Amazing. All right, Bernadine, thanks so much for, for, for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Zima Red podcast and subscribe to the Zima Red newsletter for more info on all things NFTs. Thanks so much for listening.